This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Jeremy Love in loving memory of his mother, Myra Russo, Miriam Batchaim Vasara, whose first yard site is the day that this podcast will be released, the 21st of Kislev. May her soul merit an ascension in heaven. Before we begin, a few quick programming notes. I'm going to be, please God, in Canada, in Toronto, and in New York City during the last week of the calendar year. And therefore, I cannot guarantee that there's going to be a new Parsha podcast next week or the following one. I'm still going to upload the rebroadcast ones from last year. I'm going to try to do a new Parsha podcast, but I'm not going to promise. So I just want to let you know that ahead of time. Also, I'm going to be in Toronto and in New York City, and I'm going to have some time to meet with students, with listeners, and maybe doing a few speaking engagements. So if you're in town and you'd like to meet, send me an email, rabbiwolbeajima.com. And as always, as I mentioned in previous weeks, get your mitzvah magnets, get your torch, Shabbat, light switch covers, tell your friends about them. We're giving them out by the hundreds, and we still have thousands more to give out. Visit our website, torchweb.org. We'll send them to you for free. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbyajima.com. I noticed something unusual when reading this week's Parsha, Parshas Vayeshev. Of course, the Parsha tells us the saga of Joseph, Joseph, the son of Jacob, and how he begins the Parsha as a 17-year-old who is reviled by his brothers. Eventually, he ends up being a slave, and things go from bad to worse. By the end of the Parsha, he is languishing in prison in Egypt with very few prospects from getting out of his predicament. But I noticed that every event in the whole Parsha is being triggered in some way by clothing and also expressed by clothing. And I want to speculate that the theme of the garments in the Parsha are maybe telling us a story, telling us a progression. So the Parsha begins, Jacob has a son, Joseph, he's 17 years old, the brothers don't like him so much, and Jacob loves his son, Joseph, so much that he gives him a special tunic, a special multicolored striped garment, and that incites the enmity of his brothers. Eventually, they plan to kill him, they strip off his special garment, and they throw him into a pit. That same garment is used as a ruse to dupe Jacob. They take the garment, they dip it in blood, and they tell Jacob, we found we found this garment. We don't know, is, is it Joseph's? What do you think? And Jacob thinks that Joseph was ravaged by a wild animal, and he goes into mourning. Reuben, the oldest son, he rips his clothing when he finds that the pit in which Joseph was placed is empty. Jacob rips his clothing. He changes his clothing. He dons sackcloth in mourning. And in the middle of the Parsha, there is this break. There's this intermission in the story of Joseph and the saga of Joseph. And we talk about Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And again, clothing are featured in that story. Tamar is married to Judah's two sons. The first one dies. The second one dies. She is very desirous of having a child with Judah, and she swaps the garments of the widow. She dresses in different garments. She dresses like a prostitute, and she seduces Judah and eventually bears twins to him. And then we go back to the story of Joseph. He's working for Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's right-hand men, and Potiphar's wife wants to seduce Joseph, and on one fateful day, she rips off his clothing, and then he bolts, he runs out, 
she's left with his clothing and she turns it all on its head. She accuses Joseph of seducing her and Joseph ends up in, in prison. And next week, Parsha, when the saga of Joseph takes another turn, Joseph, after languishing in prison for 12 years, in a stunning, in a dramatic turn of events, he's installed as the viceroy of Egypt. And that too is symbolized with clothing. He is given the clothing of royalty. So we see in the whole story of Joseph that there's this thread that's weaving a, a tapestry, if you will, pardon the puns, of garments featuring in this story. And I want to suggest that it's revealing to us perhaps a valuable insight into us achieving our destiny. So let's begin at the beginning. Joseph is the most beloved son of Jacob, and Jacob gives him a multi-striped tunic. And one of the questions we have to ask is, what was Jacob thinking? Why would he give this special garment, this special tunic to Joseph when he knows there's a little bit of tension between Joseph and his brothers? So the Talmud of the book of Shabbos, page 10b, tells us that indeed Jacob made a blunder. He erred because he incited envy by giving Joseph something that he did not give the rest of his sons. And the Talmud advises us that parents ought not show favoritism to one son over, over another one because then there's going to be enmity and tension between the children. But what indeed was Jacob's calculus? Why did he have this favoritism? Why did he indeed give this special garment, this special tunic to his son Joseph? So Rashi tells us two very interesting explanations. Rashi tells us that Jacob loved Joseph and that was expressed by him conveying, by him transferring all the Torah that Jacob had absorbed in his youth, he transmitted that all to Joseph, number one. Number two, Rashi tells us that the visage, the countenance, the face of Jacob was very similar to the face of Joseph. What Rashi is telling us is that Jacob viewed Joseph as his successor, and therefore he wanted to direct his Torah to Joseph. And there was a certain overlap between the two. They looked alike. And this is, of course, hinting that not, not just that they're, in their appearance they were similar, but they were spiritually similar too. And in fact, their storylines are similar as well. Jacob has a brother that tries to kill him. Joseph has brothers that try to kill him. Both of them end up being separated from their fathers for 22 years. And indeed, both of them end up fathering the tribes of Israel. Jacob, of course, has his 12 sons that comprise the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph has two of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They get grandfathered in to becoming tribes as well. And in fact, we say that Joseph is not considered one of the patriarchs, but he's almost like a bridge connecting Jacob and the rest of Joseph's brothers. He's the designated one of his brothers. He's going to span the length of Jacob to the rest of his tribes. But on a deeper level, it's not just that there is a similarity between Jacob and Joseph, and that's why he shows favoritism. The Midrash tells us that there are seven people who were born circumcised. The first of them was Adam. He wasn't born, but he was created circumcised. And then Adam's son, Shace, and then Noah, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, Moses, and finally, Job. And Adam, of course, he 
he was circumcised, and this is implying that he was spiritually perfect, he didn't have anything bad with him. But the Talmud tells us that he reversed his circumcision. Even though he was born with clarity, he was born without any evil being connected to him, he brought the obfuscation back into the world. This is telling us that these seven people are special because, at least initially in their lives, they were ascendant above evil. Most people were a mixed bag. Child's born, they're perfect, almost perfect. There's a little bit of bad that needs to be cleared away before they can be perfect. Jacob and Joseph are unique that they're part of this select fraternity of people that were born circumcised, meaning on a spiritual level, there's a certain perfection that is reminiscent, that's resembling Adam in his stature as the perfect human before his sin. There's some overlap between Jacob and Joseph on that level. And Jacob recognizes this, and therefore he gives him this striped tunic. Jacob reasoned, explained the sages, that Joseph, he's destined to become the leader. He's destined to become the king. He's going to be the priest. He's going to be the firstborn, and this garment is fitting for him. And the commentaries add, Reuven, of course, he was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to be the firstborn. He was supposed to be the priest. But when he jumbled his father's bed arrangements, which we read about in last week's Parsha, he lost it all. And in the end, Levi became the priest. Joseph and Judah became kings. In fact, as an aside, there is a very deep concept in Jewish philosophy called the Messiah, the son of Judah, the Messiah, the son of David, versus the Messiah, the son of Joseph. It's implying that, of course, Messiah, the King Messiah, there's going to be one of them that descends from the royalty, the monarchy line of Joseph, and there's going to be one of them that descends from the monarchy line of Judah via King David. And indeed, Joseph did end up becoming the quote-unquote firstborn because he was given a double portion. He was the only tribe that was given a second tribe, two tribes, not just one. He became the firstborn. So what we're seeing over here is that there's a certain primacy, there's a certain status that Joseph has, and Jacob recognizes he's going to be the leader, he's the priest, or at least initially he was supposed to be the priest, he's going to be the firstborn, he's going to be the king, and it seemed at this juncture that Joseph's going to supplant Ruvain, he's going to be the total leader. And Jacob gives him this special tunic, this special garment. And the commentaries note that in the book of Exodus, we're going to read about the vestments, the special garments of the high priest, and one of them is called the ksonis, the tunic. And this is called the tunic, the ksonis possum. This special multi-striped garment shares the same name as one of the garments of the high priest. This is the garment that symbolizes the priesthood, the leadership of the Jewish people. And the Kabbalists take this a step further. Not only did Jacob view Joseph as being the leader of his brothers, he's going to be the one and therefore he gave him this special garment. The commentaries note, the Kabbalists note, something very, very deep. Maybe I shouldn't even be saying this. They note that this is the second time in the Torah that someone made someone else clothing. Jacob is making clothing 
for Joseph. In the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, God made special leather garments, kosnos or leather garments, for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. And the Kabbalists explained that initially, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, before they caused the obfuscation to return, before they sinned, they had garments of light. Their soul was such a powerful beacon within them that it completely surrounded them with light. There was just total holiness as far as the eye could see. And then once they sinned, they brought corruption to the world, and therefore they needed now physical garments to enshroud their physical bodies. So the Kabbalists explain that when Jacob, when he sees Joseph and he recognizes he's born circumcised, he's almost like Adam pre-sin. He's making this garment for Joseph because Jacob is anticipating that Joseph is going to be the person who's going to restore the world back to its pre-sin of Adam variety, he is going to be the one to restore the garments of light to the world. And therefore, he gives him this special garment, this special multi-striped garment that is evocative of the garments that Adam and Eve had before they were banished from the Garden of Eden before they sinned. This is Jacob's thought process. Joseph is destined for untold greatness. And this garment, this tunic, is the fitting symbol of that greatness. But Jacob made a mistake. He erred. He tried to coronate Joseph prematurely. And what happened? It backfired. Instead of enshrining Joseph as the leader via this tunic, the brothers hated him as a result. This clothing became the object of the brothers' enmity towards Joseph, and it's going to trigger this fraternal betrayal. They're going to plot to kill him. And Joseph comes to visit his brothers, and they quickly disrobe him. They take away, they divest him of this tunic, and they throw him into a pit. And eventually they sell him to Ishmaelites, and to Midianites, and to the merchants, the Soharim, and to the Egyptians, to Potiphar. He gets sold from person to person. Rashi points out that the Hebrew word for this garment is ksonis pasim. The word pasim, each one of those four letters, refers to one of Joseph's overlords. Pasim, Potiphar, Soharim, Yishmael, Midianim, the four different people that bought Joseph as a slave, that was captured in this ksonis pasim, in this tunic that Joseph had, because Jacob did it in the improper way, because Jacob gave it to Joseph, and that triggered the brother's hatred towards him. Eventually, Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites, to the Midianites, to the merchants, and eventually to Potiphar in Egypt. The brothers take this garment, and they slaughter an animal. They dip the garment in that blood, and they show it to Jacob. Is this, do you recognize it? Is this the tunic of your son? As an aside, this is almost fitting for Jacob, the commentaries tell us. You know, Isaac loved Asaph, and Isaac is duped when Jacob dresses up in Asaph's clothing. And here we have the same thing happen to Jacob. Jacob loves Joseph, 
and Jacob is duped with Joseph's clothing. And he's terribly despondent. He's inconsolable. He says a wild animal has ravaged him. He's lost. Rashi tells us something very fascinating. When Jacob responds to witnessing, to seeing, to visualizing the tunic that is covered in blood, he says a wild animal attacked him. So simply means that he's assuming that some animal, a lion, a mountain lion, a bear, some animal came and attacked Joseph. Rashi tells us on a very deep level that there was a spark of prophecy in this declaration of Jacob. Really, there was a wild animal about to ravage him, and that is referring to the wife of Potiphar. Joseph is going to be sold to Egypt, and he's going to have to contend with his master's wife having designs on him and trying to seduce him, and that's going to be the next challenge that he's going to face. As an aside, I know this is, I'm making a lot of asides today, but I'll tell you a secret. Whenever you see the term chaya ra'a, which literally means a wild animal or a bad animal, whenever you see that in Jewish literature, it's always a euphemism for the Yetzirah, for the evil inclination. Jacob says, a wild animal attacked Joseph, says Rashi. There is a spark of prophecy because indeed, Joseph's going to have to contend with the wild animal, with the Yetzirah, the evil inclination of the seductions of the wife of Potiphar. So what happens in Joseph's timeline, he is bought by Potiphar, the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and Potiphar's wife, she's trying every day to get Joseph to be with her, to sleep with her. And continuously, Joseph resists until finally one day, Potiphar's wife disrobes Joseph and she pulls off his clothing. He is stripped off his clothing again. And once again, as a result of that, he's going to be thrown into a pit, into a dungeon. And our sages tell us that Joseph's response to temptation is a master class in how to deal with temptation and how to resist sin. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there's going to be a poor person, a rich person, and a wicked person that are all going to come to heaven to be judged. And each one of them, they're going to be asked, why didn't you act righteously? Why didn't you study Torah? And the poor person is going to say, well, I was so poor. I was so busy trying to make a living. I had no time to study Torah to be righteous. And they'll say to him, well, were you poorer than Hillel? Hillel was so poor, yet he found time to study. And therefore, that excuse is not a valid excuse. And the rich person will say, well, why didn't you study Torah? I couldn't study Torah because I was so busy. I had so many assets. I was so tied up with my businesses. I had no time to study, no time to be righteous. And they say to him, well, were you richer than Rabbi Elazar? You weren't. And he still found time to become a great Torah scholar. And finally, the wicked person will say, well, why didn't you study? Why didn't you become righteous? And they'll say, well, I was so beautiful. I was so handsome. I was so desirous by the women, and therefore I was too consumed with my life of lust. And they'll say to him, were you more handsome than Joseph? Did you face temptations that Joseph faced with the wife of his master that every day she would change clothing? She would wear one set of clothing in the morning to try to seduce him, and she would change clothing at night to try to seduce him again. And yet, Joseph withstood those temptations, and he maintained his righteousness concludes the Talmud. As a result of this, 
Hillel, he is going to obligate all the poor people. Rabbi Elazar is going to obligate the rich people. And Joseph, the paragon of resisting temptation, he's going to obligate those that are sinners. And when we study this portion, we'll see timeless tactics of how Joseph resists temptation. And of course, they can be applied to us. So first of all, his master's wife says to him, be with me, sleep with me. And he responds by objecting. He says, no. And if you'll notice, the way we read from the Torah scroll is we read with the trup, the cantillation marks. So on top of the word vayima'in, this is chapter 38, verse 8. And he resisted. On top of that word, you'll find a cantillation mark that appears only three times in the Torah. It's called a shalshelis. And if you listen in when they read it in shul on Shabbos, you'll notice it sounds very strange. That's how they're going to read it in shul. And this is only one of the three times that it appears. And then afterwards, there's a break. So two very unusual cantillation marks. And the commentaries tell us that this symbol, this cantillation mark, this way of reading this word It implies that he did it again and again and again and again and again. And then afterwards you have a break, a full stop. This shows us that Joseph didn't just resist temptation once. He resisted again and again and again and again continuously. Moreover, there's a break. He said no, and it was an absolute full stop categorical no. This shows us, of course, the resolve, the fortitude of Joseph that he said no without even thinking about it. No, 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 absolutely not. And he was strong enough. He had the strength of character to be able to resist continuously again and again. Commentaries also point out, if you look at verse 9, when he explains that he's not going to do it, he says, how can I do something so terrible? If I did that, I will sin to God. What he should have said is that if we do that, we will sin to God. And this, again, shows us another element of Joseph's resistance to temptation. He didn't want to be included with her in any way. He realized that the danger is going to be where he says, we're going to do it. If we do it, we're going to be sinners. Once he's lumped together with her, he's lost half the battle. He has to say, no, you are someone else's wife. I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to have no part in it. And there's no words, there's no situation in which we're going to be together. And of course, he also is thinking about the eternal consequences of his behavior. He's not going to sleep with her. He's not going to be with her. Rashi tells us he's not going to sleep with her in this world. He's not going to be with her in the next world. He realizes that if he capitulates, it's going to dog him for eternity. And he doesn't want that. In fact, the Talmud tells us that this one day where he has this final encounter, she disrobes him. He really was on the verge of yielding, on the verge of giving in. And then he looked at the window and he saw the visage, the countenance of his father. And the commentaries explain is that this was another tool. He had this last ditch effort to conjure the visage of Jacob and to think about the fact that he's part of something really special. He's part of the Jewish nation. He's a son of Jacob. He's part of the eternity of the nation of Abraham. His name is going to be etched on the breastplate of the high priest 
and on the shoulder stones of the high priest. And if he gives in right now, he'll have a few moments of pleasure, but he's going to lose something for eternity. That's a very valuable thought for all of us. If we want to resist temptation, to not think about just the immediate result, the fleeting result of what the Yitzhara wants us to do, but to think about the long-term negative impact of what it's going to do to you, to your life, to your marriage, to your soul forever, is it really worth it? Of course it's not. And there are many other lessons that we could take away from Joseph's resistance from sin. But what's the result? He overcomes, but as a result, he's incarcerated. He spends 12 years in prison. And this week's parasha, we don't really read the end of the story. Right away at the beginning of next week's parasha, we find out that as a result of him being in prison, he actually ascends meteorically to become the right-hand man of Pharaoh, to become the second in command, to become the viceroy of Egypt. And what happens then? Then we read about the clothing that he gets. Indeed, Pharaoh takes off his ring and gives it to Joseph. He takes the special garments of royalty of a king. He takes a, a necklace of gold and he gives them all to Joseph. And he gives him the special chariot of the king and they ride triumphantly all over Egypt. There's an amazing midrash here that I saw. The midrash tells us that even though Pharaoh did all these things for Joseph, actually Pharaoh did not give Joseph anything. Everything that Joseph got, he earned. So Pharaoh tells him that the whole nation will be subject to the lips of Joseph. Why did Joseph's lips merit to have this power? Because his lips didn't kiss sinfully. Why was Joseph's body covered with the special garments of royalty? Because Joseph did not allow his body to commit any sin. Why did he have the special golden necklace of royalty on his neck? Because his neck he did not allow to bend down to sin. His hands that controlled all of Egypt? It's because his hands didn't sin. His legs that he used to ride the chariot, to ride the cavalcade all over Egypt? It's because his leg did not participate in sin. His mind that didn't think sinful thoughts? What happened to it? He was heralded for his brilliance, for his genius, and he was pronounced and heralded throughout the whole land as being someone who's very young in years, but very advanced in wisdom. What we're finding out over here is that Joseph indeed got everything that Jacob had envisioned for him. Jacob was right. Jacob knew that Joseph was destined to become king, that Joseph was destined to become the leader, that Joseph was destined to restore the world to the way it was pre the sin of Adam. But Joseph needed to earn his stripes. He was given the striped tunic, but he was given it too early. Joseph needed to go through the crucible of overcoming his temptation. And only then, after he earned it, only then is he given the clothing, the garments of royalty. Was Jacob right or Jacob wrong? Turns out he was correct. Joseph was ultimately the king, and he ultimately got the ball rolling of the process of restoring the world to its pre-sin variety. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to find out that Joseph circumcised all of Egypt. All the men of Egypt were circumcised. 
this is, again, emblematic of Joseph removing all the evil from Egypt. That's exactly what Jacob thought he would do. He would bring the world back to the way it was before Adam sinned, before Adam brought the obfuscation, before Adam reversed his circumcision. Joseph is now undoing that. He got a set of garments of royalty. But you know what? He didn't earn it. He had to earn his stripes. He had to go through that crucible, that rocky road to overcome his desires, to defeat his Yetzirah. And then you know what? The first set of garments that he didn't deserve, it didn't really amount to much. He had to earn those garments of royalty. I think the lesson for us is that really all of us are destined for greatness. Maybe not the greatness of Joseph. I would say probably not, on average. But every one of us, there's a mission that we have. There is something that the Almighty knows that we could do, and we're given the tools to achieve that. Joseph was born with a certain set of gifts from God, but they're all tailored to become the person that he became. But we have to recognize, like Joseph, it's not enough to have the tools to do it. It's not enough to be primed to become a Joseph. You have to earn it. And of course, when you do get your accolades prematurely, it doesn't end well. How do you earn it? How do we become the people that the Almighty put us on this world to become? By overcoming challenges, by resisting temptation. What you earn, what you preserve in the midst of the battle of your life with Yetzirah, what you sweat for, what you have to sacrifice to get, that is indeed what lasts. Our life, our connection to Torah. The reason why we have Torah is to defeat and overcome the Yetzirah that we have. And when we do that, we're unlocking, we're unearthing the thing that the Almighty, or the role, the achievement that the Almighty placed us on this earth to achieve. Joseph was given his striped tunic. He didn't earn it yet. That was the mistake. And we see throughout the Parsha, throughout this Parsha and the next, step by step, what Joseph is doing and how the Almighty is directing him to eventually earn his stripes and become that great leader that he already had the power to become potentially, that was existing in, in, in the realm of potential, he unearthed that and he became that. It's a very valuable and fascinating lesson for us that we have greatness within us. And all of us know that. But having the greatness within you and bringing it to the forefront, surfacing it from within you, that is done via overcoming the Sahara, via overcoming the evil inclination, and here we see some lessons of how to do that. A very powerful and fascinating idea. I want to conclude with a question that came up in my studies of the Parsha. So I didn't talk about Judah and Tamar. I mentioned at the top that Tamar's deception also involved clothing. I think an interesting question to think about is what exactly was Tamar thinking? Did she really believe that this would work out? Some interesting questions to to ponder, to ruminate upon. And also, Tamar marries ere he dies. She marries Onan and he dies. Well, there's a third son. That's Shayla. But Shayla was too young. So Judah tells her, 
go to your father's home, wait for Shayla to wait, to grow up, wait for him to mature, and then I'll let you marry him. That's what's implied. And Rashi tells us that Judah says, well, this woman's dangerous. You know, she killed my first son. She killed my second son. There's no way I'm giving her my third son. She's not going to marry Shayla. And eventually she takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself and she seduces her father-in-law, Judah. The question that I want to ponder, and I don't have an answer to it. You're welcome to send it to me at rabbiwalbeitima.com. Why does Tamar seduce Judah and not Shayla? After all, her plan was initially, and that was what Judah had proposed. Wait for Shayla to grow up and then you'll marry him. And yet she goes straight to Judah and not try to seduce Shayla. You know, this was a bold move to try to dress up as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. That's one idea. But once she's doing that, why not do it to Shayla in her eyes, her intended husband, after his two brothers, after her, her two former husbands had passed, he's the next in line. Interesting question to think about. But once again, it's an absolute joy to study the Parsha with you this week and every week. Next week, I don't know if I'm in town. So again, maybe I'll produce one. Maybe yes, maybe no. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful Shabbos. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I look forward to hearing from you.